0: all right so we're going to continue looking at our book here on habits of grace I put both of these side by side because they're short chapters and they're closely related so we'll see how far we get in our discussion and so obviously we're talking about baptism and the Lord's table as being part of the fellowship of the church and in the context of the book connecting with God through his word and in prayer and in fellowship with his people are means by which God ministers grace to his people so chapter 16 wash in the waters again visible words that was the Protestant term for baptism and the Lord's Supper in the days following the Reformation these twin rhythms of the gathered church are dramatizations of the grace of God but these ordinances are not just signs but seals they confirm to us not just that God has done something salvific for mankind in general, but that His saving grace has come to me in particular. And when a Bible-believing, gospel-cherishing church offers the seal to me because they consider my faith sincere, it can be a great grounds of assurance that I myself am included in the rescued people of Christ." So would you agree that the ordinances participating in baptism and in the Lord's Table are both signs? Pictures as well as seals, confirmation of our salvation. Expand. Why, why do you think that? Any other thoughts on this? Signs, seals, do we feel like those are good ways of describing these ordinances? Okay, do you have an example? Okay. Okay. So we do certainly have a lot of descriptions of the Lord's table as being kind of a, a confirmation kind of thing there in 1 Corinthians 11, I believe. Uh, before we get there, you said Romans 6? I think Jonathan said Romans 6. Okay, so, "...buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father so we too might walk in newness of life for if we become united with him in the likeness of his death certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection knowing this that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is freed from sin okay is that the passage you were thinking of Uh, Should we keep sinning so grace may increase, may it never be? Okay. Well, I mean, it it does... There is a sense of confirmation, I guess we could say, in the perspective. I, I think the connection is stronger with the Lord's table in terms of who's supposed to participate in it, consequences for not participating in it, or participating in it wrongly. Like... You know that's the passage where it says and some people are dead because they did this the wrong way right in first corinthians 11 with regard to baptism i think we don't have quite as a quite the statements aren't quite as specific but i think we do get glimpses of the same kind of idea Um, for example paul says to the corinthians i thank god that i baptized none of you except maybe these two families because the Corinthians were having this argument about who is the best apostle and because I'm associated with this apostle or this speaker I'm better than this person over here and Paul's basically saying it doesn't matter who baptized you you're not better off because I baptized you or because this other guy baptized you the fact is if you're baptized you're baptized so it's not a mark of status in the church it's rather a mark of obedience and following after Christ um connected with that is probably a larger question or at least one that we should consider when we discuss baptism and that's this does baptism save you is it a necessary part of salvation does it actually cleanse us from sin So, we've tended to say baptism is not essential at all, which in terms of us going, how do I put it this way? What's in, what's, how do we know that baptism is not a necessary step in order to enter into God's presence in heaven and be accepted by Him? Are there any biblical examples of people who were accepted by God, went to heaven, etc., but did not go through baptism? okay so the thief on the cross is a pretty notable example are there any other examples right right but as far as the sign of water baptism there are people who will say that if you don't get baptized in water you're not going to heaven. So I think part of the reason for that is because when we look at the New Testament, it's basically a given. It's assumed if you follow Christ, you're going to get baptized. Uh, for example, uh, the Ethiopian in his chariot going down uh, down the the desert road. Philip talks to him about the book of Isaiah. I believe. Okay, let's let's. Uh, Here's water, let's get baptized. Or even Acts 2. They heard Peter's message, they repented, they were baptized that same day. So, in our churches, our practice doesn't always match up with that. Um, Sometimes it's because of hesitation, like a sense of, has this person really trusted Jesus? So we sometimes add a kind of a waiting period before someone gets baptized after they have professed to trust Christ. In the New Testament, primarily we see adults being the ones that are professing Christ, and so when we come to the question of children, is there wisdom in making sure that they understand what they're saying as opposed to baptizing them and giving them confirmation? I think possibly some of that. Yes. Are you saying we don't need to be baptized as much today? Or so just I'm clarify saying, what you're saying, please. I'm
1: saying if somebody made the decision to follow Christ then, right. it was not a simple, uh, sure, sounds good, I could try that. Whereas today, because of the lack of persecution, people can make that decision. And so it's not as confusing. I think it's different. It's yeah.
0: Okay. Or at least we have a sense that it's not as pressing. So I think there is... Um,
1: I'm not saying it's not as pressing to be baptized. Right. What I'm saying is the chance of a false profession is more likely.
0: Sure. Okay. Yeah, I, I think I would agree with you on that. So, so coming back to the question of does baptism, is it, is it a necessary part of the Christian life? Him. Yeah okay 1 Corinthians 12:13 says this, by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. So when he says we are baptized by one spirit, Is he talking about water baptism or spirit baptism? Spirit baptism. So, if we were mapping this out, we would have... um, We're going through our life here. um, Going through our life here, and for lack of a better... This is the point at which we trust Christ. at what point are we baptized by the Spirit? I don't know about time, it Okay, good. I, I would say Spirit baptism happens right here, at the same point at which we repent and trust Christ. Then, the New Testament model is. Then we have water baptism following very shortly after that. What does that water baptism accomplish? Okay. So we are identifying with Christ. Okay. What else? Yes, Margaret. Okay. So the idea of death to sin, that's the Romans 6 idea. What else? Okay. So I'm going to put that with this one because I think it's very closely related. The identifying with Christ and obedience, discipleship, like all those ideas are kind of wrapped up together. When we say that it is a death to sin, um... there are some strands of professing Christianity I mean even more broadly than those who preach the gospel that see in baptism a dealing with sin in some way so for example in the Roman Catholic Church there is the perspective that baptism actually cleanses you from sin like the actual act of the sprinkling of the water in their case cleanses you from sin but uh the reality would be that this death to sin is connected with an idea that we might talk about our union with christ so in romans 6 when it says we have died to sin it's not saying we have physically died when we are baptized with water It's not that the water itself is the thing which cleanses us. The water is a symbol of the cleansing that has already taken place in connection with the baptism of the Spirit and the ongoing work of God in our lives. Um, So, in terms of the idea of regeneration, the receiving of spiritual life, baptism does not give us spiritual life. can can you get baptized more than once Okay that that would be one example what do you think Yeah Okay Yeah And and that, yeah, that's the good point. We don't count, anything that happens before the point of genuine conversion doesn't count, you know? It's no more effective than having a bath in terms of spiritual significance, right? And for that matter, the actual act of baptism once you're a believer is not effective because of the act itself. It is effective in the perspective of the picture of what God has already done in us. So, the reason that I'm harping on this, and I'll get to you in just a second, is because when it comes to this discussion of the Lord's table and baptism, depending on your background and denominational practice and all those sorts of things, we have tended to de-emphasize or overemphasize what is going on. When I say overemphasize, there are people that say, if you do not get baptized in water in some way, you're not going to heaven, you're not right with God. That takes it beyond the biblical statement and is tied to, I believe, a misunderstanding of what Peter says in Acts. Uh, let's see here. He says, Each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Uh, That's Acts 2.38. Repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, There have been people that have taken that one verse and taken it and said, all right, baptism cleanses you from sin, so baptism is necessary to salvation, so if you're not baptized, you're not saved. Uh, The de-emphasis of it, because we've come at it from the other side of things and said, It's not not necessary to salvation, because we look at examples like the thief on the cross and other statements in Scripture. Our error has tended to be, so do it whenever or never. It doesn't matter. When I say us, like in some of our segments of Christianity, I'm not saying like us specifically. So there's the error of overemphasizing its importance, there the error of underemphasizing its importance. I think the biblical balance is you don't have to be baptized to set foot in heaven. But if you have been baptized in the spirit and genuinely possess a relationship with Christ, that ought to be a very early step of obedience in the Christian life. Uh I'm just
1: thinking when we say then, that that is the first First step because many people can <clears throat> receive Christ as Savior, but until you voluntarily do that publicly, you are not really showing that He is Lord. Okay. All, I don't know, just symbolically, it seems like the first step.
0: Yeah. To that he is Lord. And again, going back, and this is getting a little bit beyond the scope of this, but just to review. Uh, sometimes people have seen like this kind of a model of sanctification and so for some people who follow this model of how we are made to be like christ uh, no one can tell i can i'm a christian no one can tell i'm a christian and then something happens and now i'm living like a christian for some people that might be a physical act like walking forward in a church service it might be a physical act like getting baptized, I don't know that that's necessarily always what's taking place. Um, But I think part of this wrong view of sanctification could be tied to when we make a big gap here between when this happens and when this happens, if that that gets at some of what you're saying. The other thing that, and then we'll get back to the quotes there, that I want to kind of think about a little bit is this idea that if the, The Catholic Church and other churches speak of these two things as sacraments. They talk about them being effective regardless of the, uh, effective in the act itself. Like if you just do the thing, grace happens. And that, um, I'm trying to think how how to say it. We'll come back to that in just a moment. I get wary of using the term sacraments with regards to these because of all the baggage that's associated with it from the Catholic Church and other churches that misunderstand what the point of these things are. So let's go to the next quote, and then I'm kind of springboard from there. As theologian John Frame notes, the ordinances are not just signs and seals, but like preaching, serve to bring God's presence near to his people. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.16 that the bread and the cup are a participation in the body and blood of Jesus. They renew and strengthen our sense of being united by faith to the risen Christ. Like other means of grace, they are not automatic, that's the point I was just making, but operate through the power of the Holy Spirit by faith. Those who participate in faith grow in grace as we do under the preaching of God's word, while those who engage without faith invite judgment. So the question would be, do these activities, bring God near to us, and us near to God. So, to put it another way, are they merely symbols, or are they opportunities for us to connect with God in the doing of them, and what does that look like? if we are going to benefit from these activities, what things are necessary, would you guys say? Okay, definitely. Obedience. And, and then the other one that's mentioned is the, the um, presence of the Holy Spirit. I'm, uh, I'm looking for a, another quote here. see here. The next paragraph after the one that we just read is these practices are not, as some have taught since the Reformation, just signs or mere symbols. So this would be kind of a discussion between what we might call some more reformed theology and then some other sort of branches or splits off from that since the Reformation. nor do they work apart from faith as major branches of the church have maintained. If I understand correctly the Roman Catholic position on this, the act itself is effective regardless of how much faith the person is bringing to the table. So you go, you do communion. You go, you get baptized. Why do I say that faith is not an essential part? Because if you're baptizing an infant, faith clearly cannot be a part of it, right? A baby cannot exercise faith. So the, they would say the act is effective, and ironically, there are segments of genuine christianity that would say faith is essential to these things being effective but we're going to do them for babies in the hopes that down the road they'll sort of look back on what took place and that will be helpful for them down the road as they come to actually follow christ which to me there's a there's a disconnect between the good thing that they're saying and then the actual practice so why don't we baptize babies because if it is something that is needs faith to be beneficial baptizing babies is not beneficial because they're not exercising faith so faith is one thing through god's spirit dependent on christian faith in the participants given for the corporate context of the gathered church so with regard to all of these kinds of things we have this idea that the elements that are essential are god's spirit our faith gathered with the rest of god's people there's a lot of passages that stand behind those ideas if you want to think more about the subject of baptism there's a book by a fellow named uh, dr tom schreiner it's called um, i think it's called believers baptism sign of the new covenant in christ something like that it's pretty long book but it goes into all of these sorts of things the history the passages I need to read it in more detail. I was skimming through sections of it this week, looking at this chapter and thinking about it. Um, He's a Baptist. He's a professor down in Louisville, I believe. So um, we'd be very close in terms of of his perspective on those things and and what we're trying to arrive at by thinking through this chapter. Um, So I don't want to go into all of the historical details and all the passages but i do think that those have biblical basis those three ideas you need to be a believer the holy spirit has to be at work you have to be gathered with god's people this is why for example baptism is not just something that we do at home right? because if it was something that was presence of the spirit and faith only we could be like i baptized my kids in the pool last week right but if it's something that's for the connect in connection with the assembly then it's not something that can be done privately with within just our families so that excludes that if it's something that has to be by faith then like I was saying a moment ago it can't be something that we do for babies because they can't participate by faith and if it's something that requires the presence of the Holy Spirit there has to be a genuine profession and an ongoing relationship with Christ and an expectation that this is more than just a mere empty ritual because then we're denying the power and the work of the Holy Spirit in connection with these things. So, um, he says next, baptism marks new covenant initiation. So, I don't want to take too long on this, but I do want to just pause and think about it for just a moment. Turn over to Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-one. Someone be willing to read uh, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 37, I believe.
1: Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt my covenant which they broke although I was a husband to them declares the Lord but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days declares the Lord I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying know the Lord for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light.
0: Stay there for a minute. Evan, would you read Luke 22:20 t- 20 for us? Yes, please. So, who is the new covenant for according to Jeremiah 31? Verse 31, who's he making the new covenant with? House of Israel, house of Judah, okay? So this is something that God is making with the Israelites or says he will make with the Israelites. Um, When it says in Luke that this cup is the new covenant in my blood, who's he speaking to? Well, when he's, when he's doing the last, the last Supper, the Lord's Supper, who's there? The disciples. Who are all what? Yeah, followers, but specifically Jewish followers of Christ. This is a massive subject about which there's a lot of discussion. But the reason that I think it's important for us to pause and think about it a moment is... There is a tendency in the church today to say, of course anybody who's in the church participates in the new covenant because God said he was going to make a new covenant and Jesus said this is the new covenant of my blood, so we're all partakers in the new covenant. Are there any potential complications to that line of thinking? We're not Jews.
1: But John 10, says that we have other sheep and other foals that he's going to call in. So we're taking all the scripture that we align those together.
0: OK. So that's a good point. There's another point to be made from along similar lines from Romans chapter 11. I'll just summarize it briefly. Um, Romans chapter 11, has God rejected his people? Paul says no, because it's by God's grace, not by works. God's people are blinded, they did not stumble to fall. But um, the idea is that verse 17 some of the branches were broken off, you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are arrogant, remember, you're not the root, but the branches. Um, Behold the kindness and severity of God, verse 22, to those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will also be cut off. Then he comes a little bit further, verse 25, Don't be uninformed of this mystery that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in so that all Israel will be saved just as is written that the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Then the passage that we're familiar with at the end of the chapter, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. So, the way that I would be most comfortable tying those things together would be this. The new covenant is specifically for God's people, Israel and Judah. Um, and there's still elements of that Jeremiah 31 passage that have a sense which feels like it's not yet happened, right? The pervasive knowledge and worship of God that's described in Jeremiah 31 is not the present reality in our world today. So, that being said, when Jesus says this is the new covenant in my blood, there's a couple of ways of understanding that that he was establishing the new covenant that he was saying this is a sign of the new covenant but the new covenant has not yet been established that he was saying that I'm done with the Israelites and now things are going to happen in the church and so let's just move forward in the church and forget about the Israelites. The last one is the one that I have a significant objection to if you want to say the new covenant is in place today i'm not sure that i'm convinced of that but i don't think that that's an unbiblical idea if you want to say god has forgotten his people israel the church has taken their place and so we can just appropriate all the promises that god made to israel in place of them because we're the new program that god's working out in the world that ignores the sense in jeremiah thirty-one that god has said i'm going to do this and the thing that you know that i'm going to do this is until the sun falls from the sky and the stars escape from the heavens and the earth passes away. Unless all those things happen, you know I'm going to keep this promise to my people, right? And judgments in the end times notwithstanding, God's essentially saying, I'm going to do this, right? So we cannot have a perspective that says, I participate in this in place of the Israelites and they have no part in it, and they will never have any part in it. So when we say, baptism marks new covenant initiation, that reflects a perspective that God has already established the new covenant, and baptism is the thing by which we participate in that new covenant, one of the things by which we participate in it. These are complex issues, and a lot of Aspects of theology kind of come together in them. Um, I'm not sure that I'm convinced that I would say that baptism marks new covenant initiation. I would probably rather say it something like baptism marks our connection with Christ in anticipation of the new covenant. And in anticipation of the new covenant, we recognize that we were not the ones with whom god was going to establish the new covenant but as paul says in romans 11 and the passage that bob mentioned from john we are allowed to experience the blessings of the work that god is doing in the same sorts of way that god said he's going to work in the israelites in the new covenant and that might sound like it's splitting hairs to make that distinction but here's the reason that i think it's important if god has promised here's what I'm going to do for my people, and God doesn't do it for those people, but goes over here and does it for these people instead, what does that tell us about the trustworthiness and the character of God? He doesn't keep his promises. So I think we need to be very careful about saying, here's something God said to one group of people, that never mind about them, now it applies to this group of people today. So, thoughts, yes? Yes.
1: I think if we look at his language in John 10, he says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. And then I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will come to him a voice. from one flock, with one shepherd. We know that a certain number of Jews did hear, them, and did hear his voice. And even all throughout history, but not the nation as a whole. Right. So, in that respect, I don't think we would ever say that in place of Israel, he safe the Gentiles. But in not in place, in addition to the nation, he branched out and brought the whole together, potentially with the culmination being the whole nation.
0: Yeah. So, I guess. To kind of expand on that, um, it would be that in the Old Testament we have we have Abraham, right? And then, well, first of all, I mean, obviously we have Adam, and then we have like the whole world, and then it narrows down very specifically to Abraham and his family in terms of who are the pe- who's the people that God's dealing with. Who's the people through which God is specifically working? And then that continues, and then we have the Israelites, and then we come to the New Testament, and we have God working through the church. I'm going to erase this arrow. This continues, this continues, and then all together, when we come to the end times at least it's not as though there's like the jewish quarter in heaven and the church quarter in heaven and were forever separated by those distinctions um i think if we understand what paul is saying there's a sense in which the church has been connected with the work that god is doing in israel and there's a sense in which god is also doing some independent things with israel and with the church both now and in the end times with the end result that all of God's people together Jews and Gentiles alike will be in his presence forever so um, again I have if someone wants to say the new covenant is in effect today I'm not going to get into a big argument with them if they want to say the new covenant is for the church now forget about Israel I don't think that we can sustain that from Scripture. That's that's the main point that I'm trying to make. So, is baptism a sign of the New Covenant? That depends on whether you understand the New Covenant to be presently active. And if it is presently active, as a non-Jew, which I assume is all of us here at the moment, it's only active in the sense that God is doing a similar thing to the New Covenant promises He made to Israel in connection with the Church, not because He has replaced Israel and now you're participating in that covenant that that, that's the 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 point that I'm trying to make so moving on to the last paragraph and then we'll uh, we'll get into the Lord's table next week the Westminster confession speaks of improving our baptism Mathis the author of the book explains it this way baptism is not only a blessing to us on that one memorable occasion when we were the new believer in the water it also becomes a rehearsing of the gospel for the observer and a means of grace through our Christian lives as we watch with faith the baptisms of others and renew in our souls the riches of the reality of our identity in Christ pictured in our baptism. We already read Romans 6, 3 and 4. You can look at the Galatians and Colossians passages later. So here's my question. How can you participate in baptism when someone else is the one getting baptized? Should you participate? Is it just something that we watch and spectate in? or how do we participate in it? Okay. Good. What else? So a reminder or looking back on our own baptism. What else? Okay. Giving God glory for sure. What else? what what is baptism according to Romans 6 if baptism is a picture of our union with Christ and our union with Christ means that we're dead to sin and we're reflecting on what baptism means in connection with someone else getting baptized what is something that could possibly happen in connection with baptism with regards to sin our lives our holiness Okay, and possibly in an acknowledgement of ways that we have not lived for God, right? So if you think about the Lord's table, I'm sure you've probably heard this idea, come to the Lord's table, examine yourself, think about it, that kind of thing, right? But in baptism, we have a picture of our death to sin, and if we think about the fact, I've died to sin and we see that person getting baptized as a picture of their profession that they are dying to sin, and then we think about how we're sinning that week, that ought to be something that says, hey, I had to do something about this. So it can be an opportunity for rejoicing. It can be an opportunity for repentance. If we want to continue the R, it can be an opportunity for reflection. That was a spur-of-the-moment thing that was popping in my head. It doesn't usually happen. Um, so all of those things are benefits of baptism beyond just it's a one-time thing that I did, and now I just were waiting for, like, the service to get back to normal. And so my point in all this is to say, when you come to the subject of baptism, see it as an opportunity to reflect on all these truths about God, to remember the work that God has done in your life, to turn again from your sin, because that's what baptism is, is a picture of. We're with Christ, and we're not with sin anymore, so let's live that way. So uh, all of those ideas about baptism, I think, are helpful for us to think about. All right, I'm gonna pray, we're gonna wrap up and be ready to greet any visitors that may come. Lord, we thank you for this day that you've given to us. We pray that we would be uh, considering what we can do when it comes to something like baptism, the points of it, all of the different things that stand behind it. On the one hand, that it is a picture It is not something that just zaps us and something happens regardless of faith or the Spirit or the presence of God's people. But on the other hand, that it is a means by which you are working through your grace in our lives. And so we should not just sort of sit there and watch and wait for it to be over because there is benefit for our souls in actively participating. Lord, help us to reflect on these things this week in Christ's name.